It's great to see all of you this morning, and it's um, yeah, my honor and privilege to open up God's Word for us this morning. We will be in Exodus chapter 32, so if you have a Bible, please turn there with me. I will warn you, this is a, it's a heavy passage. Um, it's the heaviest passage I've ever had the opportunity to preach, and so um, I ask that you would bear with me through um, our time together, and I promise there is always, in this, at Redemption Parker, there is always the good news of the gospel that we enter into together. Um, about 15 years ago, almost to this day, um, in a church in Alabama, um, the Lord used Exodus 32 to save me. Um, and it's a pretty odd passage to come to faith through. Um, and But going into church that night, I considered myself to be a Christian. Um, throughout high school and throughout middle school, I, had, um, I was a leader in the youth group. In high school, I was the president of FCA. I had led mission trips throughout high school. I didn't have a worry in, in the world. Like I lived a safe, secure, and comfortable life as a what I believed was a Christ follower. Until I sat under the weight of Exodus chapter 32 that night night when I realized that I had never recognized my guilt before a holy and righteous God. That before that night, I believed that my morals were good enough. That they were good enough before God. That I could worship God on Sunday mornings and even in youth group on Sunday nights. But that throughout the week, when I went to school, I could love the world no differently. So Exodus 32 that night was a wake-up call for me. Because in this passage, what we're going to see is we're going to see hard things to discuss. Things that, that we don't often like to talk about, like sin and God's wrath and God's anger burning hot against good people like Aaron, who was a high priest. So my prayer for us this morning, as we jump into Exodus 32, is that as we experience the justified wrath of God towards our sin, that it would produce in us a desperate devotion for Christ this morning. So Exodus chapter 32, um, verse 1 through 6. And there's, I know many of you are note, note takers. So there's going to be three main points this morning. The first main point is that God's covenant has been adulterated by God's people. God's covenant adulterated by God's people. Exodus 32, 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Then Aaron saw this. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So if you've been with us for the past several months, we've been in, the, in a series in the book of Exodus. 
We've seen God by his mighty hand deliver people from enslavement in Egypt. He delivered them out of Egypt. He led them by by cloud and fire through the desert up to the Red Sea where God miraculously split the sea in half and allowed the people to go through on dry ground. God then, despite the people's grumbling towards him, he brought food down from heaven and provided water from a rock. And later, what, we, what we've been seeing the past several weeks is that God makes a covenant with his people, with his people. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And to seal this covenant, God tells Moses to come back up onto the mountain and he inscribes, God inscribes on tablets this law that he has given to the people. And while Moses and God are up on the mountain together, Aaron assumingly the most responsible person in the camp at the time, leads the entire community into false idol worship. And the the people think that they are getting away with everything because they don't see God. Moses is not there. Their leader is not there. But God sees all of it, and he is enraged. God's anger is hot against his people. Now, we look at this story. We hear this story. Maybe many of you have heard this story before. And we think, this is ridiculous. Like, do these people not see all that God has done for them? Like, what a bunch of idiots. Like, how much more do you have to see? But Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, does not let anybody in this room off the hook. None of us are off the hook. Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 10, 6-7, Now these things occurred, the things in Exodus 32 occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, they sat, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Paul is saying that idolatry is not too far from any of us. That actually our hearts are idol factories. We're constantly creating new idols that will satisfy our hearts, that will make us feel good about ourselves and make us feel fulfilled in this life. In in Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, he defines an idol as this. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. The people of Israel were looking for something in this calf to give them what only God, Yahweh, could give them. But what they know from from their past, back in Egypt, is that they worshipped a calf. Really, it was a bull. And this bull, this golden bull that they worshipped back in Egypt, symbolized power and strength and fertility. This, this doesn't, it shouldn't seem too far off from what we worship today or what we, the idols that we create today, right? Like, obviously, I, I've never met a gold carver in here, a gold crafter. So we don't have golden calves in our homes, at least I hope not. But the, the idols of status and control and power and money, the things that this God promised that it could give you, like those things we hold high, we hold highly in our lives, right? Control, money, power, fame, relationships, our children. Like our spouses make terrible gods. Our children make terrible gods. 
The 22-year-old who carries a football down the field makes a terrible God. And Paul is saying, don't subscribe to it. Don't give in to it. And so with what Paul says here and what the example that Exodus 32 gives us, I believe that there are three warnings in this passage for, our, for us today. Warning number one, do not appoint leaders who give us what we want. When the people came up to, up to Aaron, and Aaron or they, they said to Aaron, Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. Aaron should have said, no, no way. I'm not doing it. Moses is coming down. Just be patient and wait. But Aaron gave in. He gave them what they wanted. But not only that, Aaron looks for a compromise. He still wants to be seen as a good, godly, Yahweh following man. And so he makes a compromise. He sets up an altar in front of the calf and announces a festival to the Lord. And in your Bible, you will see Lord there is capital L-O-R-D, which means Yahweh. So Aaron wants to worship Yahweh still, but he also wants the pleasures of this world. This is selfish leadership. This is not loving leadership. Aaron is about their happiness and not about their holiness. Leaders must resist the pressures of the culture if they want to lead God's people in true worship. And I would be in sin if I stood before you today and told you how awesome you are and how wonderful of a plan God has for your life. If you just come to church and do all these good things, if you pray this prayer, you don't have to worry about God again. But this, what we see from the Bible, what we see from the words of Jesus is this is cheap Christianity that offers you everything yet costs you nothing. And I would ask you as a church to please, please pray for the elders of this church. Please pray for myself and Mark and Rick and Brad as we seek to faithfully lead this church that we would not subscribe to cultural Christianity, but that we would be deeply rooted in the convictions of the Bible. So warning number one, do not appoint leaders who give us what we want. Warning number two, we must humble ourselves in worship. God will later refer to his people, the people in the camp, as a stiff-necked people. This word stiff-necked means that they are not willing to bow their heads before Almighty God. That in their minds and in their hearts, they are only thinking about what God can give them, what God can do for them. The people are totally happy to worship God as long as they have it on their terms. Like, are we approaching worship in the same way? Are we approaching worship like the psalmist with a broken and contrite heart? Like coming here Sunday after Sunday, let this not be like it was for me, just an ornament on your life. What we see in Ezra chapter 10 is that the people of God gather around as the word is opened up and these people fall on their faces and and like they're weeping before God, confessing their sins in repentance. Second Chronicles 714 says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins. Humility is required in order for God to forgive our sins. We must realize our guilt before God. And ultimately what this is saying is that if there's no place for humility in our worship, there's no place for God in our worship. 
Warning number three, which comes directly out of not humbling ourselves in worship, is that when we don't humble ourselves in worship, we end up creating God in our own image. And in Genesis chapter one, what we see is that God created us in his image. And we flipped it upside down. In verse 6 in Exodus 32, the people ate and they drank in the presence of this bull idol. And then what did they do? They followed it up with debauchery. They indulged in revelry. They created an idol who would let them do whatever they wanted to do. They had no, this, this God had no morality at all. That sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? Often we want to think about God as loving, but not as holy. We want to think about God as merciful, but not as judge. We want God to forgive our sins, but we don't want to really obey his will. We want the blessings of God while also indulging in the pleasures of this world. Are we willing to surrender our lives under God's authority humbly? R.C. Sproul says this about this passage. The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. One thing that I wrestle with often is the idol of safety, comfort, and security. In this culture, the culture wants us to be safe, comfortable, and secure. And when we're prone to that, we're often prone to, to pushing away anything that makes us feel uncomfortable. We're insulating ourselves from anything that makes us feel uncomfortable. So we could not even fathom to think about God being wrathful and angry and just. But the reality is, is that if God is loving, he must punish sin. He must punish sin. It is because God is holy that he must punish sin. If he didn't punish sin, he would not be God. And so point number one is that God's covenant is adulterated by God's people. Point number two is that God's holiness demands the obliteration of sinners. You guys feeling cozy now? (laughs) Yeah, this is heavy stuff. God's holiness demands the obliteration of sinners. Exodus 32, 7 through 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who you brought up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are a stiff necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. This is heavy, guys. We know that God knows all, that God sees all. God is sees into the camp. He sees their wickedness and their idolatry. And God is enraged, telling Moses, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against this people and that I may destroy them. Like, why is God so serious about this? 
Why is God so serious? What we've been seeing the past two weeks in Exodus 24 and 25 is that God's people, like I mentioned before, they made a covenant with God, with one another. God became their husband and they became his bride. This covenant was sealed in blood. An animal had to die in order for this covenant to happen. These people are 40 days out from their marriage ceremony and they are committing adultery against their God by running after a false God. This is why James, in the book of James, this is why James calls sinners, us, an adulterous people. Because when we commit idolatry, we are committing adultery against God himself. This is a low blow. We will see how Moses responds to God in a bit. But as Moses comes down the mountain, after hearing this from God, he comes down with the two tablets in his hand and Joshua is with him and he begins to hear this music. And you'll see this in verse 19. He begins to hear this music and the singing. It's Moses almost hears like a rave going on down in the camp where he sees, and then he comes down further and he sees this calf and he sees the dancing and the people are going wild. And now Moses is enraged. Moses takes these tablets and throws them on the ground in anger. If this is Moses' anger, human anger, how much more does God's anger burn towards sin? So now we have Moses angry and now God is angry. Why? Because holiness matters to both of them. Holiness matters to God and holiness matters to Moses. And God's people are a representative for God's holiness. God calls his people to be holy because that's, that's the physical representation of who God is. They are representing God on earth. We are representing God on earth. So when we are not living holy lives, that's a reflection upon, upon who people think that our God is. So holiness matters to God and holiness matters to Moses. So now Moses in verse 20 he begins, where, where he begins to show the people the consequences for their sin. Because there are consequences for sin. So in verse 20, look with me there. Moses, he took the calf that the people had made and he burned it in the fire. And then he ground it to powder and scattered it on water and made the Israelites drink it. So point number one about the consequences of sin is that sin brings shame. Sin brings shame. Moses sees the the people running wild in the camp. He grabs the calf, throws it in the fire, grinds it down to powder and makes the people drink it. He destroys and desecrates their idol only to make them digest it. Like, I don't know of something that can make someone feel more foolish than passing a golden cow through your bowels. <laughs> Sin brings shame. Look at me at verse 26 through 28. So Moses stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp, one end to the other, killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3000 people died. Next consequence of sin is that sin brings death. Sin brings death. And this, while this 
That, those couple of verses are shocking for us, and they're harsh for us to hear. They're hard for us to hear. The reality is, is that God almost promised that in Genesis chapter 2. That God told the man and the woman, if you eat of this fruit that I told you not to eat, you will certainly die. Because sin brings death. So now, God tells Moses, and Moses tells the Levites to go through the camp, kill your brothers, your neighbors, your friends, and 3,000 of them die that day. And while that number seems like a big number, there are hundreds of thousands of people in the camp. And so while 3,000 of them died, imagine the impact that that would have on God's people, on the people of Israel at the time. Like being able to experience that, seeing it with your eyes, hearing it, even smelling the smell of death. That will keep you from sin if you see that going on. People watching would be deeply affected by this. Another thing that that this scene shows us is that when we sin, we don't sin in a vacuum. The community is affected by our sin. Our families are affected by our sin. Don't think that you're sinning and you're sinning alone. Like your sin affects everyone. So consequence number two is that sin brings death. Consequence number three is that sin delays or could even disqualify you from the service of God. Like, can you imagine with me for a second, if Moses comes, if Moses, before coming down the mountain, the people in the camp are sitting there and they're waiting patiently. Maybe they're, maybe you have some group of people over in the corner praying. Maybe you have some like playing a game and they're just waiting patiently there for Moses to come down. And then they see Moses coming down the mountain and they just start slow clapping Moses, right? Moses, Moses, God's going to go before us. This is so exciting. We're going to build the tabernacle just like God had promised. And God's going to be our husband. He's going to go before us. We're going to conquer the nations and God's glory is going to be made known everywhere. That is, that is some kind of joy that these people did not get to experience. They chose the pleasures of sin over the pleasures and the joy of serving God. And while, while they will get to build the tabernacle because God is gracious and merciful, that time will be delayed. Do you know why two-thirds of the, of the foreign mission field are women? The number one reason that young men do not go to the mission field is because they are engrossed in pornography. Because the idol of pornography is keeping them from the service and the joy in God. But it's not much different from other idols in our culture. Like even thinking about safety, comfort, and security. Like that's keeping millions from giving their lives to the service and the mission of God. I don't, I don't say these things to just be hard. Because this chapter, like it did 15 years ago, it should shake us out of our complacency towards sin and idolatry. The harshness of this passage should be a warning to us all. So if you're feeling the weight and the heaviness of being under God's justified wrath towards sin, then I want to encourage you in in a weird upside down kingdom type of way to be comforted. Because God's, this is point number three, God's compassion is displayed through a faithful mediator. So we see God 
God's covenant adulterated by God's people. God's holiness demands the obliteration of sinners. And God's compassion is on display through a faithful mediator. Look with me at verse 10, the end of verse 10 through 14. So God says to Moses, then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with your mighty hand? And why should the Egyptians say it is with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring this disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Do you see this? God offers Moses to be the father of a new nation. God says, listen, Moses, we're just going to, we're just clear these people out and I'm going to start over with you. You're, you're my new guy. Moses declines. Moses says, no, God, because Moses understands the heart of God. Moses is committed to God's glory. Moses is committed to his people, to the people of God. Moses doesn't want his people to be destroyed, but he wants his people to be holy. So Moses is about the glory of God among his people. But we can't miss this invitation, this implicit invitation from God. He says, leave me alone, Moses, so that my anger may burn against this people. But Moses is thinking, okay, when I leave him alone, he will destroy these people. But if I don't leave him alone... Things may go very differently for these people and for God. And so Moses begins his plea for mercy. Moses pleads with God for mercy and Moses' pleas are heard. By not leaving God alone, the people of Israel at this point are not left to face their fate before a holy God. So Moses mediates by calling God to hold fast to his promises. He's reminding God of the reputation that he has. He's reminding God of his promises. And this isn't like that God forgot his promises. Moses is pleading with him saying, God, your glory is at stake. What would, what would the nations think of you if you brought your people out here to destroy them in the desert? They would laugh at you, God. Don't forget Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who you promised that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Don't forget your promises, God, and your glory. And God relents. God relents. The prayer, this prayer that Moses prayed changed the course of history. So when you think that your prayers are insignificant before God, look at this, that Moses' prayer changed the course of history. And this wasn't Moses ever making an excuse for Israel's sin. Moses knew that Israel's sin was great, but Moses knew he was interceding for the guilty. What we see here is that God is looking at Moses and saying, Moses, well done. Well done. You've remembered all that I have said. You've remembered my glory. 
when nobody else is remembering my glory. You remember what your life, why you were made. You remember why every human on earth is made. It is for my glory alone. And Moses is telling this to God. He's confessing this to God. So while God did relent from destroying his people on the spot here, Israel is still guilty and deserving of the fullness of God's wrath for their sins. So we see Moses mediate through prayer. And now we see Moses mediate with his own, or tries to mediate with his own life. Verses 30 through 34. I'll just summarize it for us. So Moses, the the next day the people wake up. I'm sure feeling groggy from their night of partying. But they wake up the next day and Moses gathers the people around. And he says, listen, your sin is great. You've sinned before against a holy and righteous God. But maybe, just maybe, I can make atonement for your sins. Maybe God will forgive all of our sins. Bad news is is that Moses is just as sinful as the people he's trying to atone for. Moses needs atonement himself. He can't go and make atonement for their sins. Moses is in the same camp, but he goes up to God and says, God, please, like these people have sinned greatly against you, but please, God, please forgive these people's sins. But if you don't, then like, if at all possible, then just blot me out of your book, just blot me out of your book. And then let the rest of these people just go free. And look at me at verse 33. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people out to the place that I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. Can you imagine that gut punch that Moses would feel in that moment? Like, oh, I can't, I can't make atonement for the, the sins of the people. Well, who will make atonement for the sins of man? Not just the the sins of the people in, in the camp, but who will make atonement for us in this room? Who will go before us? Who will mediate between God's holy anger and my sin deserve in the sin that, that deserves the fullness of God's wrath? Well, 15 years ago, I had this same cry and what followed it up was the gospel. That for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, not Moses, but Jesus Christ, who came and gave himself as a ransom for many. And there are no perhaps, there are no ifs, ands, or buts in Christ. Jesus is the fullness of God. He is full of holiness and righteousness. And he became sin who knew no sin. So that we, filthy, adulterous, stiff-necked people could become the righteousness of God. Like what a gracious and merciful God to send his own son to bear the the anger and wrath that, that we deserved. Like our faithful mediator has stepped in to our place as our perfect atonement. And that wrath, the wrath of God, the full cup of God's wrath that was poured out on Christ, Christ drank the entire cup. And then he said, it is finished. So when we stand here thinking about our sins before God, look to Christ. Brother and sister, look to Christ. Who is to condemn you? It is Christ Jesus who died. 
And more than that, he was raised to life. And guess what? Right now, he is interceding for us at the right hand of God. So as we close this morning, I want to ask you if you've acknowledged your sin and idolatry before a holy God. And then I don't think it would be too weird of a thing for if you feel led by the, by the Lord to, to fall on your face in repentance, humbly bowing before the Lord, confessing your sins before him. Because what, what the gospel promises us is that Christ will lift you up. He will give you a new heart. He will give you a new life, new desires. And then together as God's family, we get up and we have a party and we have a celebration of the glory of God and the grace of Christ that we have seen on the cross because he is interceding for you right now. So let me pray for us. Father God, we are so humbled to be in your presence, God. For you are holy. While you are gracious, God, you are also just because of your love for us, God. Lord, I pray that we would not continue in our sin and idolatry, God, but that we would turn towards Christ, who is our faithful mediator, who came and gave his life for us, God. Lord, as we um, respond to, um, to your word through song, through coming and taking of the bread and the wine, may we be reminded of all that you've done for us, God, by saving us from the death that we deserved, the the death that Christ had swallowed up and that we now have victory over sin and idolatry because of what Christ has done. So may your spirit fill us this morning. May we respond in obedience and humility towards your word, God. Lord, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.